This is the Prophetic Politics Podcast. I'm Nick Rodriguez. I'm Thabiti. I'm Thabiti. So, Thabiti, we did our introduction in the last episode. Uh, in this episode, we'll be taking on a foundational question that will hopefully pave the way for others. And it's an age-old question, actually. What exactly is the role of government? Seems like we should choose some easier topics, Nick. It was your idea, actually. <laughs> so we thought we'd start really broad and wide. So, And what we're going to attempt to do is boil this down into sort of the why is this even a debate? We're not going to, we obviously can't give all the background, but we can give just enough uh, that we can try to hopefully set the stage. Yeah. And, and it's a critical issue because much of the public debate, the public discourse and disagreement has fundamentally to do with how you view government and its role. Yeah. Uh, and whether or not as Christians, then we think about that question well biblically. Yeah, exactly. Amen. So, brother, help us with this. What is the role of government? What's the, what are the different perspectives on this? All right. So again, uh, number one, I am an amateur political philosopher at best, but it helps to have a little bit of kind of history on this. And so I will give a very limited history. So, um, and and, it, I'm, and it necessarily it's going to be a bit truncated because we're going to talk just about sort of the West and sort of the kind of roots of how we think about government in our country specifically. Okay. So there's a lot I'm leaving out here. Um, but if you think about it, um, uh, the earliest conceptions in, in, in the West of the role of government actually do come from the Bible. The idea of sort of the divine right of kings and that, you know, authority of a king or of a sovereign is handed to that person from God. I mean, that's right out of Romans, right? And um, so that was kind of the initial view. And then, but a lot of what influences our current system of government in the U.S. comes from uh, sort of a series of developments that took place uh, sort of, you know, from, call it 1600 to 1800 or so, 17th and 18th centuries. Um, you know, you think about, uh, you think about essentially the 18th century enlightenment as being a real pivot point for all of this. Um, so uh, if you think about the 18th century enlightenment, you have people like uh, John Locke are kind of at the, at the forefront of it. And you have this concept um, that's really, really important of going from sort of a con the idea of rex lex, which is the king is the law, mm -hmm. to lex rex, which is the law is king. The idea that we are ruled by laws rather than um, people. Um, it's a huge deal, actually. Uh, and from there, uh, you get this idea of a limited sovereign. Limited by law, certainly, but also limited by uh, you know, what would be called a social compact between the governor and the governed. Um, you know, the idea of a constitution dates way, way back. And one of the earliest examples is obviously the Magna Carta in the UK, which for the first time in British history limited the right of what had before then been an unlimited sovereign. Um, but then, of course, the question is, what should the limitations on a sovereign be? Uh, so fast forward to the US and the American Revolution, which is sort of very heavily influenced by this Enlightenment thinking. One interesting side note on this is that um, most of those people, you, you, could, you, would, you could call the Enlightenment, in effect, a godless phenomenon, right? That's one interesting kind of wrinkle mm -hmm. um, here is that in, in throwing out the divine right of kings, you're also kind of throwing out the idea that we need God at all, right? So John Locke doesn't make an appeal to human rights on the basis of um, you know, our, the image of God and all. He makes it on the on on the he makes that appeal on the basis of something much more nebulous called natural law. Mm. The natural law sort of says that we have these rights. Um, and our friend Jonathan Lehman, I think I, I love his imagery of this. The idea that 
Christians did well in America alongside these sort of godless deist type folks who uh, sort of founded the country was almost a, it was a gentleman's agreement between the two that both of them kind of got the outcomes they wanted because we were sort of majority Christian or culturally Christian as a nation when we were started. And then the folks who kind of weren't terribly Christian said, well, that's fine because you know this all kind of fits within the same framework. Um, and so ever since the America, so, but think, think now about the actual US constitution, right? Again, think about the idea, that idea of a limited sovereign. Um, and you see that kind of written into there are specific kind of enumerated powers of the executive, of the legislature, of the judiciary. And then, of course, you have a Bill of Rights, which in case anyone was sort of wondering, tells you what those people can't do, right? The first 10 amendments to the Constitution are very, very kind of explicit about what Congress shall not do. Um, and everything from free speech to, uh, to militias and gun rights to search and seizure, other things like that. And so, of course, setting up a, a government like this sets the stage for a debate over well, what exactly do those powers mean? How expansive or limited should they be? Um, and for what purpose? So then fast forward to the 19th century, um, and there's no doubt, right, the U.S. government, the federal government especially, has grown in its scope and power from its 18th century foundations to today. There are arguably sort of two big expansions. The first is mid-19th century around the time of the Civil War. So, you know, people joke that the Civil War was about um, grammar, saying the United States of America are, and after the Civil War it was, the United States of America is, mm. representing an expansion of federal power. Now, you could argue that federal power was harnessed for important reasons. That federal power was what, in fact, preserved the Union at all. Um, even there were people who, who wondered whether Lincoln even had the right to go to war against a seceding state to hold the Union together. In that case, the sword settled that question, to be honest, right, if we're being really honest, but that came with an expansion of federal power. Mm. Um, and of course, it was the federal government that, through three more amendments to the Constitution, ended slavery, ended second-class citizenship for black people, at least on paper, mm -hmm. um, in this country, and so on and so forth. So that was kind of the first expansion. And it was an expansion that was rolled back a bit under sort of uh, un under redemption in the South and any number of other things like that. But undoubtedly, the federal government was bigger after that than it had been before. Then fast forward to sort of the early to mid-20th century. Um, again, a sort of a moment of crisis. Great Depression happens in the 20s. Um, you have a big election in 1932 between, uh, between Herbert Hoover, the incumbent president, and uh, Roosevelt, uh, who ultimately, as we all know, would get elected president. Um, and the famous thing that, and the idea there was the economy was you know, in free fall, people were suffering, and Hoover was sort of holding the line on limited government. He was saying, the famous quote, I'm not going to get this exactly right, but it was sort of, our problems will not be solved by raids on the public treasury, was what he said. Mm. Um, in other words, the government can't, there's only so much the government can do to help. Roosevelt said, you know, poppycock, of course there's something the government can do to help. And of course, as we know, when he, when he came into office, it was sort of, let's try everything. Right, and that's where your alphabet soup of programs comes from. It's where kind of the expansion of what we know as the welfare state comes from, um, and of course, World War II dovetails with that, which means the expansion of the national security state. Mm -hmm. The result is a much, much bigger government, mm -hmm. um, a project that is continued through sort of decades more of Democratic Party dominance in the sort of the fifties and the sixties with Lyndon Johnson and the Great Society, um, and so that brings. But then that brings us to probably I think the most recent turning point, which is nineteen eighty and the Reagan revolution. Um, the famous quote from Ronald Reagan um, at that time is, government is not the solution, it is the problem. Mm. 
And after nearly 50 years of sort of dominance of the New Deal coalition, you could argue that coalition had sort of was crumbling, was rotting even. And so Reagan had something to say to the country that the, you know, sort of this was something, something different was possible. And I would argue Reagan's paradigm is still the paradigm we're living in today, right? It is kind of not more natural than not to speak of government as something to be suspicious of and of something to be kind of concerned about when it expands its power. And to be clear, by the way, I'll just say, even as a lefty progressive myself, one of the great gifts that modern conservatism gives to our discourse is a skepticism, right, of how big government ought to be and how much government ought to do. But today, the fault lines of kind of what the role of government should be um, sort of hit almost every area uh, of public policy. Right. They hit this question of how much should the government be spending money on, say, health care. That's obviously been the debate over Obamacare and everything else like that in the news. Um, should the government be uh, spending money on um, on education federally or at any other level? How much? Right. Should we have should we even have a public school system um, and so on and so forth? Um, should how much should the government spend on the national security state? And then, of course, underlying all of that is. How much should the government tax us to pay for all of these things? So the other side of the debate comes into play just as much. We'll have a, a separate episode on taxes. But of course, inherent to this question of how big government should be is how much tax should it levy in order to pay uh, for all the things that it does. So that's kind of where we find ourselves today, uh, sort of debating between those two perspectives. Mm -hmm. uh, so Thabiti, let me ask you uh, to sort of bring us back to biblical principles now. Why does this issue pose a challenge for a Christian? Well, uh, before we sort of dive into the Bible here a little bit, um, mm. I think just listening to you recount that history um, reveals to me a number of challenges. Mm. So many Christians today are kind of ahistorical. Mm. They, they just feel like they're, they're like Melchizedek. They just sort of had no beginning, no end. They right. just <laughs> popped into the world and they were Christians and yep. act as if there isn't history. Um, that's connected with this discussion. So one challenge is for us is, is to be uh, well-versed uh, in this history. So let, let me give you a particular example of what I mean in terms of how this can be helpful, knowing this history. Mm. You, you referred at one point to the expansion uh, to the modern welfare state. Now, yep. chances are, if you're, if you're 50 or younger, when you hear welfare state, you've got a particular image in mind. Right. You're thinking of the so-called welfare queens and uh, things of that sort. Um, and you, you you may be thinking predominantly in ethnic terms, mm. African-American or Hispanic, and folks who are contributing to the government largesse, but they're on the government dole illegitimately. But actually mm -hmm. what we call a welfare state has a, quite a different origin mm. um, with regard to why it exists and what it was trying to provide for in terms yeah. of uh, the mass of the country yeah. uh, and the safety net for the for the average Joe. Uh, in the country. And so, you know, one thing I'm just reminded of listening to you is, unless you know that history, chances are you're going to be caught up in the eddies of the current hmm. sort of vernacular and imagery and argument. And that's really not going to be rooted really well in why we are where we are. Yeah, right. It's a really good point. Uh, the second thing that strikes me as a challenge is, you, you know, you're walking through the John Locke's of the world and, and the things of that sort. There is political philosophy and moral philosophy hmm. beneath government that has a lot to do with defining what is the good life. Yeah. And there, too, I think most of us are unacquainted with 
uh, those underlying philosophies and those underlying worldviews. And oftentimes, if we're if we're not careful and we just sort of adopt mm-hmm. a, a political orientation, a political philosophy, we're also drinking in sort of worldviews and, and drinking in philosophical commitments mm-hmm. that at various points may square with the Bible and other points won't square very well at all. And so just to illustrate yeah. that, the sort of perennial debate about how do you care for poor people? has a lot to do with your underlying sort of political philosophy, uh, whether you think the role of, of government is to maximize freedom and pleasure, mm. or whether you think the role of the government is to sort of um, care for those who, to use a Rawlsian term, who are you know, sort of behind the veil and, and to sort of optimize you know, mm. outcomes for people assuming this veil and this contract. Um, well, that philosophy has a lot to do with where you end up, yeah, but it may not have much to do with what the Bible actually says, which which can have a unity and a cohesion that our, our human philosophies lack. So yeah. uh, two challenges there that, that yeah. as I hear you talk, I think, OK, yeah, this this is for us to bear faithful witness in this arena. Uh, we actually have to be kind of what the founders uh, bet the democracy on. We actually have to kind of be an educated populace. We, we got to right. be people who, who think yep. well uh, about these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, we, we, we are, if you're listening and, and you're a Christian and you're thinking, well, I, I'm not going to college and uh, study the, the Enlightenment and all that right. good stuff, and I don't even really like to read, uh, I hope you like to read your Bibles. And, and the good news is, is, even if we don't have all of that history and all of that philosophy, uh, we do have a God who's spoken to us. And he's told us some things that um, instruct us with regard mm. uh, to government and what it's for. Right. Well, so that was going to be my next question <laughs> to you, uh, Pastor T. I think, um, what does the Bible tell us about the role of government? A whole lot. All right. <laughs> A whole lot. Uh, but in the interest of time, I think I would want to just root our thinking into two foundational texts, one mm-hmm. Old Testament and one New Testament. Uh, in the Old Testament, uh, following the flood, uh, as, as Noah and his sons and their wives emerge from the ark, uh, we find the Lord speaking to Noah uh, and Moses recording these words for us in Genesis chapter 9, uh, beginning in verse 5. He says there, uh, And for your lifeblood I will require reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood be shed, shall be shed, for God made man in his own image. Now, most ancient commentators would see in this text mm. uh, a foundation for human government. And in this text would see a mm. couple of things that are really quite critical. So uh, in verse 6, the Lord sort of grounds here capital punishment carried out by fellow man, carried out by government, so mm-hmm. to speak. Uh, he grounds that in the protection of the imago Dei, uh, the, that we are all made in the image of God, and therefore we have the kind of dignity where taking of life and marring that image in that way uh, is so serious, so severe, that it should itself be met with capital punishment. Mm. Right. So that's the first thing. I think from a biblical perspective, how we treat each other whether we're talking about government or the way James uses this same idea to talk about the words we speak to each other. Yeah. Uh, so from something as casual as human speech, which is really, really quite critical in, in political discussions, mm-hmm. um, to something as serious as, as capital punishment and government, right. from a Christian perspective, it's all grounded in an outworking of this idea that God has made us in his image and his likeness. 
Hmm. And, and again, the second thing we see from this text, which, which I just I've alluded to already, is that God here institutes a, a practice where it is man calling the reckoning, holding accountable other men, other mm. people who have wrongly taken life. Um, and, and, and there God is, to use the language of the other text I want to come to, Romans chapter 13, mm. God has given a sword to the state, right? So yep. even here we're seeing in embryonic form some of the purposes of government. Right. One note on that before you go on to Romans is just that in in secular philosophy, right? The, I, I believe it was Max Weber mm. who defined government as a monopoly on the use of force, mm. right? So mm. the sword that you're that's describing, right. and the idea being that that's that, that, that at its bare minimum, that is what government essentially uh, is. That's right. Without saying anything about the form that government takes, not yet at least. Mm-hmm. Right. But but you do say in, inherently in this idea of governing is force, yes. is power, is the legitimate ability to coerce, yep. right? And and that's going to push back against certain philosophies that mm-hmm. of government that see any government coercion as inherently illegitimate. Right. Well, that's not true. Uh, and we don't right. want it to be true in some cases, for example, when it comes to protecting life, right? Right. Uh, we don't want it to be true that government has no authority and no power mm-hmm. uh, to coerce in that way. But again, I think I think Genesis 9 is is pointing forward in many ways to a text like Romans 13. Mm -hmm. Apostle Paul writing that to the Christians in Rome. Um, This is an altogether different government now. Caesar thinks he's God uh, Mm -hmm. and and Christians are being persecuted uh, in the Roman Empire and things of this sort. So it's not even an advantageous government to Christians in this way. Mm -hmm. And Paul says some really foundational things here that I think Christians want to hold on to in shaping their understanding of government. But he also says some things that while this text is quoted a lot, he also says some things that are not quoted very often Mm. that I think are really helpful um, balances. So Romans 13 begins this way. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. So right from the start, Paul is saying here, we we owe a a kind of submission to those who are in authority. right? And he clarifies why. He says, for there is no authority. That's a universal statement. There is no authority. Mm -hmm except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Now that's breathtaking, Nick, in its scope. I mean, think about what that means. That, that means everybody from Vladimir Putin to yep. uh, Donald Trump to Kim Jong-un um, to the... To the, some of the nicer ones, too. To some of the nicer... I was trying to get around to those guys, right? <laughs> right. And so, yeah. and so around to To Justin nice Trudeau guys. or whatever. Oh, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. All the Canadians yeah. are nice. So, yeah, right? Pretty much. Yeah. So, so that, but that means every government mm-hmm. has, an, has been instituted. That's an active word yep. by God. Not just allowed to exist, but in his definite foreknowledge and counsel, God has established government. And so we owe an obedience to government because it comes from God. That's, that's what Paul says there in verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will occur, incur judgment. Right? That's how serious our submission to government is. And it's not because the government is righteous that we owe that submission. Right. It's because God has appointed it. Now, that's important because at certain points, this text goes on to limit our submission to government. Mm. So Paul keeps arguing here in verse 3, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, they shouldn't be, Mm. but to bad, right? Would you have no fear of one who is an authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. 
But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, right? We're back to that idea mm. of the sword, for he is the servant of God and avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, this gets evoked so often mm. in in uh, unhelpful ways. Mm. It's part of why I wanted to come to this text. Yep. Because, for example, I've seen many Christians look at protesters uh, of police brutality and evoke Romans 13 and say, in a sort of across-the-board way, you just submit to authority. That's yeah. your only responsibility and your only duty. But I think when they do that, if, in fact, in those instances where the protest is legitimate, there's been some wrong done by the government, they actually misapply Romans 13. Sure. Because what this text says in verses 3 to 5 is that the role of government is to reward the good and punish the evildoer. And what we know from the painful record of human history is that often government reverses those things. Yeah. It will sometimes reward the bad and punish the good. Yeah. Right? And what the text goes on to say then in verse 5, therefore one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. The Bible tells us that the, the, one of the, the natural limits to government authority is human conscience. Hmm. Well, why? Well, because government sometimes gets it wrong. And in the human conscience, Romans chapter 1, God has written his law. That we have an innate sense of right and wrong that God has written on the heart that we're not to disobey. Hmm. Now, it doesn't mean our conscience is infallible, but in places where our conscience which is where God is speaking to us in a, in a natural law kind of way, yep. is in conflict with government. I think this text is pointing us to, the, to us to obey our conscience, particularly where government gets its basic responsibility yep. of rewarding the good and punishing the wrong, where they get that wrong. Yep. It's then therefore not sort of functioning the way that it ought to function. And here's, here's where I think government, I think part of what we're seeing from this text in terms of purpose of government, uh, not every political philosopher would agree with this, but I, I think, I'm inclined to think it's true that one purpose of government is to shape the moral character of its people. That's why you reward the good and punish the wrong. We're all, in that sense, kind of Pavlovian, right? We're, we're all sort of like, like Pavlov's dogs. You know, we're meant to be reinforced to do what's good and to avoid what's wrong. Um, and because good and wrong are written on the conscience, the knowledge of that, we're, we're meant to be engaging our government not in a blind submission, but we're mm. meant to be engaging our government with a well-informed conscience, a conscience that's shaped by the Word of God, that's, a sense, that's sensitive and alive. And this is why it's dangerous for us just to comply with a political party or comply with a government yeah. without testing it according to God's Word and conscience. There's two one point of application on that that just suggests itself to me uh, to be one is it, in the same way that you want to protect your kind of Black Lives Matter protesters um, against the government that seemingly doesn't want to do what they're asking it to do, you're also by that in that same stroke protecting the March for Lifers right. under the Obama administration exactly or right. under the Clinton administration. Uh, and going further back, I think this is really important. This is where your ethic, I think, of civil disobedience comes from. That's exactly right. right. So you look at the entire civil rights movement. You look at them breaking laws that were in place and instituted by government mm -hmm. and refusing to comply with those laws out of, as you say, conscience. That's exactly right. To say. And um, it's funny. The other thing I guess I'll note is we, I think as Christians, have a right to do that. Mm -hmm. We should not expect that right to be protected by that self-same government. And it is a blessing when it 
is. Mm -hmm. So we have a First Amendment. It says that our right to protest is protected. That's wonderful. It is an aberration in human history. That's right. Most of the time when you choose to protest your government, you are signing your own death warrant. That's right. Um, But nonetheless, there is a, uh, for the Christian, that is a thing that they can do. Sometimes it is a thing they must do Mm -hmm. um, if their conscience is violated by what their government is asking them to do. And here's a a beautiful providence of history, Nick. That 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 freedom which we have, which is protected in our founding documents to protest, mm-hmm. it's only protected when you use it, mm-hmm. right? And so there's there's a there's a double danger of Christians responding superficially to Romans 13, saying submit to authorities, stop all that protesting. Right. Not only may you be calling people to comply uh, with, they also that tend to right. say that when they think their guy's in charge. That's right. That's exactly <laughs> right. So not only are you are you sort of, you know calling people to uh, an, an ill-informed, perhaps, uh, submission to government, mm. you're actually also weakening a blessing that God has given us providentially in this particular country, that mm. right to assemble, that right to protest. But we want to protect that yeah. uh, as best we can for conscience sake uh, and, as, and as a kind of corrective on government itself. Right. Yep. Uh, the last thing I'll say about Romans 13 uh, when you talk about challenges that Christians have for thinking through this, maybe, Nick, the biggest challenge mm. is balance. It's holding together the many things mm. that the Bible says um, with integrity and not mm. leaning off to one side. So let me, those folks that we, we imagine that we're having this conversation with sometimes who may be on the quote-unquote political right, uh, they, they may be uh, conservative Christians, uh, and they may be apt to emphasize verse 1 really strongly, submit to those who are in authority. When their guys in charge, <laughs> yeah. When their guys, not. In, when their guys in charge, yeah. but let's let's say they're fair-minded yeah. on that point. Sure. Let's just say okay. they're fair-minded. Yep. Yep. Submit to those in authority. Then you come down to a text like verse six, and it says, "For the same reason, you also pay taxes. <laughs> For the authorities are ministers of God, attending right. to this very thing." It's striking to me how you know we can, as human beings, see one side of the coin and not see the other side. So to make that real practical, we'll have Christians who say to those protesters, "Stop protesting, submit to authorities," mm-hmm. and the next breath complain about taxation. Mm. When verse six says, "Pay your taxes," right, and when Jesus says, "Give to Caesar what is Caesar's," uh, right, and give to God what is God's, um, and so that issue of of balance of holding together the whole Bible in, in proper proportion. Um, that's our biggest challenge to, to sort of walking faithfully as Christians, you know, through this issue of what is government for and how do we engage it. So let me ask you one more biblical question sure. on this before we get to kind of the, the broader debate here. Um, what does the Bible tell us, if anything, about that question I posed at the beginning, kind of how big it should be? I, I, I did frame it in kind of big versus small terms. Mm-hmm. Does, what, does it tell, give us any guidance on that? Well, it's not not in sort of that framing, right? Yeah. That I'm aware of. That that's our kind of contemporary framing. Should government be big or should government be small? The New Testament Christians, if you take Paul dealing with the the Caesars of the world, mm-hmm. well, in one sense they're dealing with a very small government. They're dealing with an emperor, <laughs> whose whose word is law, right? In another sense, they're dealing with an expansive government. I mean, the Pax Romana, the, 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 right. the sort of Roman state is sprawling through yeah. the whole world and maintained by military force, mm-hmm. right? It's a big government in, in that sense. So it's not quite the best framing on the issue, right? Yeah. And here's how I might put it. I, I would think that the Bible would have us have a government as big as it needs to be to sort of carry out its moral obligations mm-hmm. um, and as small as it needs to be not to infringe upon the, the conscience and the moral obligations of its citizens. 
So we're, we're talking about a question of reach, and that's always something you're discerning artistically. That's not something you're going to be discerning with one proof text that decides it for every issue. So double-clicking on that one bit, moral obligation. Does that moral obligation include caring for the poor? Yes, according to the Bible. Okay. All right. Yeah. So and that, that, certainly, yeah. that certainly is an individual Christian responsibility. I think that's, in, insofar as an individual Christian responsibility, it's also a collective church responsibility. Huh. Do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. But it starts with do good to all men. Uh, that falls upon us from the, the character and nature of God himself. Um, and so God who makes his reign to fall on the just and the unjust alike, uh, who shows mm. um, common grace to all of creation. Yep. Caring for people is a, is a common grace uh, requirement. Yep. Uh, and since government is filled with people made in his image, uh, we ought to be imaging that for even with government. Now, yep. how much you do and how you do that, there, there are lots of other particular Whether that, that means that. you think there should be such a thing as Medicaid or Medicare or Obama, like that is up for debate. I That's, think. Exactly right. um, That's exactly right. But the right. idea that the government should care for all its people and it's and it's most vulnerable among them yeah that's in the bible yeah and, and i think yeah. that's just well i just think that's working out what the bible yeah. is saying here rewarding the good punishing the wrong yeah um and and again we, we can have space for people who say hey let's just take rewarding the good and you have some people who say well you know what if you just leave people alone that's enough reward <laughs> right <laughs> right and then you'll have other people who say no actually you know there are times and places where we actually want to incentivize yeah. certain things that are good sure um and again in those practical matters that that's a place for intelligent discussion and debate but that the government should be doing good to its citizens is is really self-evident yeah. Hey, yeah there's one other thing i want to add to this and you tell me if i'm reading my bible right faster uh <laughs> no no it just because one thing that strikes me looking at the Bible is that if you literally just, you know, so, you know, you read your epistles for commands, you read, you read Acts often for examples, for example, yeah. right? Or you read history for examples. And if I look at the history of kind of governments throughout the Bible, what you must, I mean, what you sort of see, well, you see mostly a string of dictatorships, right? Of one kind or another. You see Christians for the most part submitting faithfully to those dictatorships, sometimes serving them explicitly as in the case of someone like a Daniel. Mm -hmm. Um, and you also see a range of kind of economic systems to get around to that. So my favorite, obviously, is kind of Joseph and the famine and mm -hmm. Pharaoh, mm -hmm. where, I mean, what would what would today be basically called an expropriation of wealth, right, right? Is, right, is basically the public policy put into Joseph's mouth by God mm -hmm. and then carried out by Pharaoh. Now, not to say that I'm for expropriation. I actually, I say this all only to make the point that there seems to be a wide amount of latitude in terms of how that ought to get carried out, how, how this mission of um, that you've just described in Romans 13 ought to get carried out by a government, and that mm -hmm. there's a lot of room for debate, I think, in what form government should take and ultimately then what government should do in terms of practical public policy. No, I, I think that's right. I, I, a couple of the texts that come to mind as you're talking there, I, I think of what God says to his people in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Mm. It calls him in verse 16 to uh, a kind of moral purity. Yep. And in verse 17, he says to them, learn to do good, correct oppression. He talks about caring for the widows and the fatherless. And you just see that running through the prophets in the Old Testament, that God's people ought to be agents for caring for the needy. Uh, mm -hmm. It's just everywhere. And then I think of, for example, Proverbs 31. Um, we, we go to that chapter and we think so often about, you know, verses 10 to the end and the virtuous woman. Mm -hmm. Praise God for such a woman. I'm married to one. Yeah, right? me too. Mm -hmm. um, you, but we forget 
The proverb starts this way. The words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him. Hmm. This is a king hearing from his mother how to be a king. And part of what she says in verses 8 and 9 is this, and people will know these words well. It's often used in the pro-life movement. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Hmm. Open your mouth. Judge righteously. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. Hmm. That's God's charge to his kings, to his leaders. Hmm. And that that is simply reflecting the purposes that, that God has, I think, put in all government, right? Yep. Um, and it should be our desire in our heart. And so I'm, you know, just to be um, bringing this back to elections, for example, sometimes you hear Christians say, we, we're looking for a commander in chief, not a pastor in chief. And when I hear that, I know they're not thinking carefully about the use of the word pastor in the Old Testament. Hmm. It almost always is speaking of the kings of the Old Testament, not the spiritual leaders. Um, and so God wants for his people civil leaders who are actually pastors who hmm. shepherd the sheep and care for people. Uh, and we, we do violence to our government and do violence to ourselves. Um, when we, when we sort of think about leadership as something other than pastoral care. And I think that that would explain, and we'll talk about this on another episode, but why it is so jarring to see a certain subset of Christian leaders today um, endorsing someone who no one would say is a pastor in chief, <laughs> right? And kind of throwing their weight behind him. And I think it, it, it jars precisely because it cuts against the grain of that, mm-hmm. um, that, that command, what we kind of know to be true from reading our Bibles. That's mm-hmm. really, that's really interesting. And, and what those same leaders, the opposite of what those same leaders would have said five years ago, right? Uh, with a different right. president and different yeah. time. Yeah. That's right. So it's that, it's that, it's that challenge to balance and consistency yep. in holding the whole Bible together. That, that I think is the biggest the biggest challenge for us. So let, let, let's talk a little bit about our, our characters I said we would bring bring out here, the kind of so-called secular progressive and the so-called Republican evangelical. What do they think about? Let's start with the Republican evangelical. What's going to be the typical viewpoint, again, made in as good faith terms as we can, right, uh, on this question of the role of government and the size of government? Well, I think most of the folks I know would say um, the size of government should be small. Yep. I, I do think you're right. I think Reagan won his debate, yeah. and, and we're still living in that framework, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that the size of government should be small, that there's a danger, and, and I think at points we can illustrate this. This is a legitimate concern. There's a danger of government overreach mm-hmm. in various ways. And in fact, we have been witnessing from the Supreme Court to the executive uh, that overreach in, in certain decisions, whether it's a decision, an executive order on transgender gendered bathrooms or whether it's Supreme Court um, ruling in Oberfell uh, that establishes gay marriage as a law of the land. Um, so so your, your, your conservative Republicans are going to have a concern for the overreach of government and therefore argue for the, the smallness of government. Mm. Um, they're also going to argue that uh, in favor of a, a kind of free market perspective mm-hmm. and, and um, going to be arguing for the protection of liberties. These are either free market and uh, other kinds of decisions, and you can go out to sort of a libertarian branch on that, or or the more conservative um, GOP Republican view on that. Um, And so that's that's going to be the kind of world that they Mm -hmm. will want to see the government inhabit in that way, in broad strokes. So I'll add a little bit of color to that. These these are this is the part of the show where the questions are for both of us. I would say, um, go back to Reagan and the critique. Then right. Mm 
the critique so leaving aside whether there was such a thing as a welfare queen for a second mm -hmm. right the idea that the kind of new deal state had grown without a lot of criticism and without a lot of questioning of whether it was efficient or effective i think held some held some weight mm -hmm. right i do think there was this sense of the government was spending and that it was spending unaccountably uh, and that its programs weren't always working, weren't always effective. Um, Reagan sort of found an America that was kind of ready to believe that because it was very much like a, it, 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 you could very much see the kind of abuses that were occurring in the system, mm -hmm. right? I think too, they so, so uh, a kind of Republican evangelical would say, um, we, you know what they would say is, the best reading of it I think is, government has less of a chance to screw up when it does less, mm -hmm. right? And we've all heard mm -hmm. of government screwing up, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and so the, the more limited the scope can be, the better because markets, so uh, this going out to the, um, uh, you know, go, going out to sort of capitalism as sort of the, the kind of system that occupies anything the government doesn't do, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. You're going to end up with sort of beneficial, harmonious, efficient outcomes, mostly mm -hmm. from a free market perspective. Um, and I, I just the idea that like we might as well let the market do things much more efficiently than the government would wherever we possibly can. Mm -hmm. um, so I would say that that's kind of what I would say is the the sort of best reading of that argument. And I think for the for the re, the Republican evangelical, I would argue that this has less to do with I found it in the Bible and more to do with I'm on Reagan's team, so yeah. <laughs> I'm naturally kind of suspicious of what government does, right? I'm naturally not for government doing more and so on and so forth. Yeah. Now, if I were to flip that and say, what's the, how do they mismanage the issue? What's mm -hmm. the critique? And I'd love to hear your thoughts on this as well. The best way to summarize it would be to say that people think it's still 1980. <laughs> they think those same excesses are still prevalent today. When in fact, they have been remarkably successful at making us all, at making us all kind of watchdogs over government. Mm -hmm. Right to make sure that government doesn't waste, so that it's a huge scandal when it does. Um, after welfare reform in 1996, like welfare is no is no easy gig, yeah. right at all. Uh, you could make arguments about how easy a gig it was prior to that, but it certainly isn't one now. And that is that is something the Reagan Revolution accomplished, mm -hmm. right? Um, to make the argument um, that um, anything that uh, sort of government does, well, that taxes are too high, they were much higher. In 1980 than they are now mm -hmm. and yet the same arguments are being deployed today about overtaxation and any number of other things like that so it's almost like they just sort of decided the basic decision rule is when in doubt less mm. without a whole lot of questioning as to well less of what and in what circumstances and my view is there is generally a nuance to that right so i am i am a sort of proud capitalist right i would say um in general, markets do magically. It's, I, I think this is a common grace of God, right? Like, so the, the old quote from, the famous quote from Adam Smith, right? And I'm not, again, I'm going to not quite get this right. But the father of modern capitalism said, it is not from the benevolence of the butcher or the baker, right, that we derive benefit from our trade with him, but from his self-interest. Mm. So the thing I think about when I think about capitalism is God has, the common grace of this is God has found a way to convert sin into benefit, right everybody's self-interest colliding with one another somehow produces an outcome that is beneficial for most not all but most but we shouldn't be surprised sin and self-interest is the engine of capitalism we shouldn't be surprised when occasionally it breaks down 
and someone finds a way to kind of take advantage of all the others, mm -hmm. right? Um, you can call that monopoly power in some cases. You can call it kind of rigging the system. And for the most part, government intercession in the economy, um, when done right, is about correcting those failures rather than uh, ra rather than sort of existing for its own sake, right? Saying mm -hmm. oh, we we government should do this just because, mm -hmm. right? Um, and I think that 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 is in effect the almost sort of centrist view that was born of kind of mo most. It's it's it, that's the other thing is conservatives love to paint progressives as socialists when in fact they gave up being socialists long ago, right? They're all kind of they're all kind of centrist free market people now. I don't know. Right? Bernie's trying to bring it oh, back. Oh, I'm sorry. You're right. You're right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> Bernie is trying to bring it back. You're right about that. Um, and we'll, and, and, and you're, for all I know, he, you're right. He may succeed. So they may they may have a point at some point. Well, you know, I, kind of in the near I don't future. know if he will succeed. But yeah. you know, I, I think I, I certainly agree with you that there are inefficiencies in markets uh, and a sort of over-reliance on a market approach to fix everything. Uh, presumes too much in terms of people coming into the market as equal players uh, mm -hmm. and presumes too much about uh, the willingness to exchange being sufficient enough to determine that the, the exchange itself was moral or just right yeah. so example of this hurricane hits Florida uh, people who own um, tree removal businesses and contractors descend on Florida and you read these news stories of some um, little old lady uh, facing now the escalating market prices for tree removal, something yeah. that would have cost $1,500 now costs $15,000. Mm. And then you read, and the market will bear that because of the, because of the disaster, right? Yeah. And then you read this little old lady got gouged for $50,000 by some, some you know, uh, scurrilous guy. Um, but there, there, there are a couple of things to observe in that. One is just whether or not morally, it's justifiable to sort of see rates go up from 1500 to 15000 right? because of an act of God, so to speak, because right. of a hurricane, right? That's a moral question there uh, that the market won't solve. The markets don't answer that question. It doesn't answer that That's question, right? right? And, then, and then you get, as you were saying a moment ago, the displays of depravity where mm -hmm. you get a contractor who says, well, I can get this lady for fifty grand, And, you know, she's a little old lady. She doesn't know any better. I, I can get her. Well, the markets don't don't easily sort of fix that either, right? Mm -mm. Um, and so you, then you have to have a you have to have a conversation about uh, how you compensate for uh, those weaknesses. And I think if I'm thinking about my typical mm -hmm. typical what we're imagining here as a typical guy on the right, uh, those kinds of issues seem not to be on their radar. No, right? I, I I think one mistake the that a free marketer makes is to conflate what is doable in a market system with what is right mm -hmm. That's right? right so like That's i right. i have a friend uh who summarized it quite well she said the ethos in business in, a, in an unfettered market system is um if you can you should and if you don't you're stupid mm. right and i think that's where as you say for the government to set limits based on what is moral and they need not be gigantic limits, right? Oh, There's a right. lot of room for freedom. Exactly like, right. A hurricane is a very kind of specific mm -hmm. event, and that's why we have a FEMA. We have all sorts of things the government steps in and does mm -hmm. for moments like those. It's mm -hmm. we're talking five, ten percent of economic activity, mm -hmm. not all of it. That's right. As the sort of scaremongers on the right would have you believe. That's right. And again, I think, and I think we're talking about those limits. Uh, going back to sort of what is government for. Uh, we're, we're talking about those limits, at least, because I think from a Christian perspective, one hopes that their government sort of inculcates the moral character 
that it wishes its citizens to see yeah. and sometimes needs to place limits on mm. the immorality of the citizens yeah. uh, in order to sort of create that inculcation. Yeah. So let's take the other side now, lest we be accused of not taking the other side, <laughs> or lest I be accused in particular. Um, what does the secular progressive have to say about government and its role? So talk about your friends. Okay, well, what, are my, what do my friends say? So... Well, I, th I think so. Again, I'll start and, with the. And that's unfair. We both have friends. That's too, right. right. That's right. My friends, and, you know, and I'll say me too, right? Mm -hmm. I'll make the best faith argument I possibly can for this one. There's a. Okay, so there's an episode of The West Wing that I'm going to hearken back to. And um, so. It's always good to bring a West Wing illustration. I know. It's a, it's a mark of a progressive. Here, okay, I'm going to cite my West Wing now. Um, and what what it what it is is it's it's you know it's a you know, obviously the West Wing is a thinly veiled kind of retelling of the Clinton presidency, right? Bill Clinton had a famous line in one of his states State of the Union addresses when he said the era of big government is over. By the way, conservatives, that's how you know you won. Um, he said the era of big government is over, and uh, so so literally this was very thinly veiled. They were going to put the same line into the fictional president's speech. The era of big government is over, and Toby. Ziegler, the sort of old school liberal on the team, says, I fought against it. And he gives this impassioned speech about how that's too simple. Government can be a force for good in people's lives, right? It is his secular retelling of the biblical principle you've just recounted. When you think about what government can and has accomplished for its people, and I'll just, I'll just tick off a short list, right? So, yes, ending slavery, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, yes, instituting like civil rights legislation. Right. There's a, there's a reason, for example, um, you know, it, traditionally, the federal role is the civil rights role. It's where all the action on civil rights is. Sure. Right. Uh, so just to give an example, the biggest part of government is the part that can be most relied on these days. Right. To enforce civil rights. Um, you think about um, think think about the the sort of post New Deal state. Not all those programs work, but think about the GI Bill. Mm -hmm. Think about. Um, the sort of advent of the 30-year mortgage, which mm -hmm. was a sort of gigantic sea change in how we think about capital ownership in this country. Right. Think about all those things that happened in the mid-20th century that the government made possible. A whole generation of Americans educated, um, building, building sort of an era of shared prosperity, the likes of which we'd never seen before. Um, separate discussion about which Americans were given those benefits. Well, uh, this is what I'm sitting here yeah, thinking yeah, about. Yeah, it's yeah. an important discussion because I yeah. think it ties to the change in perceptions about mm. the welfare state. Yep. So when the GI Bill was essentially making middle-class life possible yep. for white Americans and black Americans were excluded, yep. the GI Bill was no problem. That's right. When those things become then sort of rights yep. and resources to ethnic Americans, then all of a sudden it's the welfare queen. That's right. Uh, and so again, we're talking about our own depravity yep. and the ways in which government needs to be sensitive to that. But I, I interrupt. No, 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 no. You're, you're exactly right about that. Mm -hmm. And I guess, and, and, and my point is that you can see people, actually people of all stripes often can point at several of those examples. Say, oh yeah, that was a good thing. Mm -hmm. That government did that. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, one thing I think about, you think about social security. Now people, we sort of, I don't know. It's not that no, no one wants to, very few people want to end social security today. Some people want to reform it or whatever. We can talk about that. But one thing I one thing I one fact I learned once upon a time, which I always think about, is um, the the deepest one of the number one causes of poverty before Social Security was simply old age. That's exactly right. Getting exactly old, right. outliving your money, right? And 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 just not being able to work, and therefore, That's right. and so this idea of a government sponsored retirement system, like, did a massive was a massive benefit 
um, for the elderly of this country. That's right. Uh, to just guarantee a certain level of kind of pension. That's right. Um, so these are these just small examples, well, big examples, I suppose, but a list, a, a limited list of things government to, can do for good. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes, I, I, I guess the, the other thing I need to join that with is sometimes these are things that only government can do. That's right. Right? So like, so sometimes the conservative response would be, well, can't we have a private sector system to do that? Mm -hmm. um, sometimes there are incentives for that. Sometimes there are not. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of the work of public policy is trying to tell between the two, is trying to discern between the two. And I will be the first to recognize that I don't always get the answer right. But I think it is overly simplistic to simply say, if the government does it, it must be bad. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that's that's the, so anything you'd add to that before we go to the mismanagement of no I, I think that's a, I think yeah. that's a fair description yeah okay yeah all right so where does the secular progressive go wrong let me see let me count the ways no. <laughs> <laughs> on this particular question of of the role of, of the government. role of government yeah well I think one thing I would point to and I'd be interested in your take as well as someone who sort of has lived in that milieu been saved been been sort of mm. with God's grace helped to look back on that milieu more critically as a Christian but I think the, the one thing that, that I would point to in terms of where they miss it is thinking that you can have a government and a public discourse without a moral framework, mm. right? And so the, the tendency to say to religious folks, for example, leave your religion at the door when you come into the public square, uh, I think is both unworkable uh, and, and dangerous, yep. right? Um, and, and, and I think it's, for many folks, I think it's actually also dishonest um, mm. because we're always going to be enshrining uh, in law, this government's purpose, some vision of the good life, mm. which always means you're going to be talking about some questions of morality, yeah. right? Uh, so whether or not we confer status on same-sex couples that is equivalent to the status we confer on heterosexual couples, uh, what we call marriage, well, beneath that is a real moral conversation about the meanings we assign to those sexual relationships and, and so on. Um, and uh, whether or not, for example, we're going to have laws that um, allow for abortions or mm. not. Mm. Oh, They're just profound moral questions there. Uh, and, and actually questions that, again, we don't want to take out of the hands of government. Because if we have no way of deciding, for example, um, the value of life and the protection of life. Yep. The other word for that is anarchy, right? Yeah. Um, and so that that's for me that's the biggest sort of blind spot or or missing uh, aspect to a kind of secular yep. progressive view of government. Yeah. No, I think you're. I think you're absolutely right about that. I think. Um, well, so so I've, I'm I'm well. I guess I'm of two minds about this. On the one hand, I think what you've said out of Romans thirteen really compelling in terms of thinking about government does have to shape the moral character of its people, mm. right? What's challenging about that, specifically in the context of a democracy, is that um, it is it is the best we can do often, right, is sort of a pluralistic view mm -hmm. where there are certain rules and then certain people win and that, that ultimately is the result. That's right. Right? So... I, this is actually one of those imponderable, irresolvable things, right? Because we we obviously don't want a kind of Christian state that sort of says this is the Bible says we'll we'll just do whatever the Bible says. Some, some of us don't. Now, some there, of us don't. There are theonomists out there who, yes. who very much want that. Right, right, right. Yeah. But but most of most of even our friends on every part of the spectrum would mm -hmm. not say that. Mm -hmm. um, but there's this tension around. Of course, our worldview is an absolute worldview, 
right? It says exactly all the things you've just described. Mm. And to what extent should we have public policy sort of say those things? So the secular progressive will say, the, okay, on the one hand, they'll say the best we can do is kind of have an equal footing for every viewpoint and let sort of a majority or whatever rule, mm -hmm. other rule it is kind of prevail on that mm -hmm. without necessarily saying anything about morality. Now, where they get into trouble, this is the critique that the conservative will give, and it is, it is a fair critique, is that they'll use, they'll, they'll say it's kind of secular or non-loaded when that's, in fact it is. That's exactly right. Right? Like, so So you'll say, well, we just need there to be kind of an equal playing field forever. But what we really are saying is, for example, a view that says um, that, um, you know, LGBT marriage equality is right um, becomes the dominant view, mm -hmm. right? When in fact... True pluralism involves making space for all those views and letting them coexist together. That's, That's right. really hard to do, mm -hmm. um, but secular progressives sometimes um, don't do it. Right? Mm -hmm. Somet sometimes they'll they have a view, they don't admit that they have it, mm -hmm. but they will then seek to impose that just as anyone else. I would tell you, our folks should not seek to impose our worldview. At least only up to a point. There needs to be a certain amount of respect and tolerance that deference is not always shown to us, mm -hmm. right, by secular progressives either. Mm -hmm. No, amen. On economic issues, I'll just point out that, of course, the conservatives are right, that government can, all, can screw things up, that things can go wrong when government intervenes, that we should be quick to admit that, that we should be for better operating government. Um, I think, uh, I, I, I told you in the last episode, my, my, my day job is working to improve government. I see lots of things to improve. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, and in fact, it's true. You only want government to do the stuff it absolutely must do, mm -hmm. right? You don't want to kind of have it take on things just to take on things. Mm -hmm. One thing I think the secular progressive gets wrong. So if the, if the, if the conservative places too much faith in sort of individual goodwill to do the right thing, mm -hmm. the secular progressive faces places too much faith in the state mm -hmm. to do the right thing. And of course, the state is just people, and the people are just sinners. Mm -hmm. So of course, there's tons of potential for abuse in that end as well. Mm -hmm. And I think secular progressives don't take that threat as seriously as they should. That's good. Yeah. That's good. That's so, good. Yeah. all right. So to wrap this up, then, if you're a you know kind of Christian wondering how they should think about their place in this kind of overall debate. Um, what would our advice be uh, to that person as they navigate where they think they stand on some of these issues? Sure. First of all, I, I, I'd start where the Bible starts. So yeah. 1 Timothy 2, verse 1, it literally says, first of all. <laughs> first of <laughs> all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercession, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, mm -hmm. that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. So we need to start with prayer. Mm -hmm. uh, and we need to start with prayer for these kinds of outcomes, that, that our country, our government, would lead to a peaceful and quiet life and allow for godliness to flourish, right? Uh, which, again, is connected to another purpose of government, I think. And from a Christian perspective, is, is we want to see human flourishing. Mm -hmm. um, and so we need to pray for that. We can't, we can't produce that by strength. So I would start there. And then secondly, keeping in mind Romans 13, 1, submit to government. So yep. honor the government by submitting to it. Uh, and everything that's good, endorse it. Uh, and everything that's problematic uh, in a way that's appropriate to the, to the laws of our country, if possible, you know, challenge it, right? Be engaged as citizens in that way. These are remarkable rights we have that we ought not take for granted. Uh, so those would be two things. Start with prayer, get involved. Uh, and then thirdly, as we said earlier in the show, 
educate yourself. Mm. Read, read widely. Vary your news feed. By all means, vary your yeah. news feed uh, and become more uh, literate yeah. in terms of the public discourse and the purposes of government. All I would add to that is just coming back around to your points. And I'll, actually, I'll just make an application to myself, right? As an American citizen living in an America whose president is Donald Trump right now, a president who, you know, uh, spoiler alert, I disagree with on a lot of things. Um, I remember after the election, the thing I reminded myself of was God has placed this man uh, in authority uh, over, over us. Um, and so I am to submit to that authority. And uh, so that's kind of number one is whoever it is, whether you agree with them or disagree with them, to kind of remember that and, uh, and, and keep it in mind. And then as you try to evaluate uh, sort of what you do with respect, what you're supposed to think of that government, try to evaluate each action individually uh, on your own rather than kind of deciding this person's all one way or all another way. Right. So uh, just to give a couple of examples, when. When Donald Trump, uh, you know, so I heard this on Al Mohler's podcast the other day, when, when Donald Trump's Department of Education is authoring, re, uh, you know, is writing the reauthorization of the Higher Education Act with some concern for religious liberty, we should look at that and say, huh, might that be a good thing that his administration is doing? Perhaps, right? Again, we'll, I'd have to get into it. We'd have to get into it. But that's, that's an open question that can't be settled by this question by just deciding what we think the man at the top is like. Um, uh, when, you know, he issues the executive order of the day, we should evaluate each kind of thing in terms of does it fulfill this sort of purpose um, that you've so beautifully laid out, uh, the BD from Romans 13, right? Is it, um, is it helping encourage the good and discourage evil? Um, and we should try to kind of think in an open way, in an expansive way about that so that we can get better and better at discerning sort of policy by policy whether government is doing the right thing, right? Because our government will be strongest in an, at least in a democratic context, when we as citizens kind of develop well-formed opinions um, about each of those things. And of course, for most of the episodes of this podcast, that is what we're going to hope to, we're going to hope to contribute to that dialogue a bit by kind of educating ourselves and hopefully educating you, our listeners, um, about sort of the issues and how Christians should think about them. Amen. May the Lord give us grace to do that. Indeed. Amen. Do you want to close us in prayer? Yeah, I want to thank you guys for joining us for the Prophetic Politics Podcast. Uh, We're glad that you've listened in and hope that it's been edifying in some way. So first of all, let us pray. Father, we again, we thank you for this conversation. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you'd help our listeners to chew the fish and spit out the bones, to hold to the things that are good and true and lovely according to your word. And if there's anything that's been an error uh, or anything that's unhelpful, uh, to discard it. Lord. Um, and so help us to be discerning people uh, in this confusing world uh, and help us to be thinkers, Lord, to work our way through issues so that we could, again, bear faithful witness to your name and not be sort of carried along by every wind of doctrine, even political doctrines and currents. Uh, anchor us to the truth. Sanctify us in the truth. Lord, your word is true. We love you and we praise you in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Amen.